Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, costume designer Justin Seymour, joins us to talk about her work on Unorthodox. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode, so make yourself comfortable as we jump into the conversation with Justine. Emmy-nominated, Germany Television Academy Award winner, German Television Award winner, and Compassion in Costume Design winner, Justine Seymour. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. What a lovely intro. (laughs) I wanted to spice up a little bit because usually it's very samey on each episode and it's always just a, hi, thanks for joining me. So I thought I'd show off the calibre of guests that we have today with the awards that they have won for the project that we're going to talk about. That's so kind of you. (laughs) And I bet I've probably missed one or two, but I'm going to gloss over that and quickly move on just in case you correct me. I think you hit them all, but uh, the weird thing is, is, is having all of those fantastic accolades during a pandemic and not really being able to celebrate it with anyone, but celebrating it with you over Zoom is lovely. (laughs) You know what? I'll take that. I'll take that. It's actually, that's very... It's really heartwarming of you to say that could be part of your celebration and everything. I do want to jump into the beginning, but because you mentioned about like celebrating and everything, and this is probably should be put at the end, but I'm going to jump into it straight away, is what has been the reaction like for you? The fact that you've got award recognition, there's people have come out and really praised the show for all its authenticity and use of language. It must be quite like a, not overwhelming, but a very sort of like proud and achieving thing. Uh, look, it's been extraordinary. Um, it's by far the most talked about show that I've ever had the pleasure to be part of the team on. But, you know, the reaction has really actually just been incredibly warm. I had a a flurry of social media reaction, which was, I'd say 99% was positive and lovely. I I did have one that wasn't and how somebody told me that I had got it all wrong. And, um, (laughs) but I wrote to her and I apologized and said that I did my very best and I didn't mean to offend her in any way because she obviously was from that part of the world. And she really heard my apology and uh, then she asked me if she could possibly come and be my assistant so I guess she didn't hate me that much (laughs) that was very sweet actually so it's been extraordinary on every realm and then of course you know having to do it to have all of that fantastic recognition during COVID has has taken away from any partying or any networking which those awards are actually set up for people to then network like crazy so all of the people who uh, received awards and nominations this uh, last year with along with me have had the same situation it's been lovely but very disappointing at the same time but you know considering it's a pandemic I think um, it's been an extraordinary experience. Well that must be such a weird feeling though knowing that you're can't enjoy the night to sort of that represents all the hard work, if that makes sense. So you can't be at these sort of events and after parties. It must be so such an odd feeling doing it over Zoom 
and just sort of patting yourself on the back rather than having the whole team with you. Just such a, there must be such a strange feeling. So let's start from the beginning. I know once, how did the role come about and what was the interview process like and what enticed you to taking the role? Well, I wouldn't call it a role. I'd call it a position because I'm a costume designer. So, so a few years ago, my daughter, who was working for NPR Berlin as a journalist, um, interviewed Deborah Feldman. And she had phoned me up and she said, I, I think it must have been about four years ago. And she said, oh, mum, I've just, I've just interviewed this extraordinary woman. You must read her book. So I read her, be- her book after my daughter um, had recommended it because she's a fantastic, very well-read person. And so I always read whatever she tells me to read. And it was, it was a true finding your voice, coming of age, discovery from a young woman who had a very extraordinary lifestyle and she she just never fit into what was given to her as a as a as a child and I think a lot of us feel like that it really is a universal story it doesn't matter which religion or which part of the world you're in it resonated to me deeply as a woman who just didn't feel like I fit in with the the place I was born or the community I was born into anyway so that was lovely. And then a couple of years later, Marlene and my daughter uh, said, Mom, they're making a TV show about it. Um, I've put your name forwards because she happened to be interviewing with Anna Winger herself. Just mentioned that, you know, asked if they had a costume designer. And Anna Winger was like, no, no, we haven't got anyone yet. Why? Why? And she goes, well, my mum's a costume designer. And Anna was like, your mum, lovely. You know, and in her mind was like this you know, little old lady knitting. And then a couple of days later, Anna Winger actually Googled who I was, which was very kind of her. She went, oh, Marlena, your mom really is a costume designer. So that's how the interview process started. I was actually in Jordan on Messiah at the time, Netflix Messiah. And so we did it over Skype, old fashioned Skype. Yeah, so I, I interviewed with uh, Henning, who is the producer, and then with Maria Schroeder, who is the director. And then as soon as I finished in Jordan, I went over actually to Berlin and had an interview with the whole team. And yeah, it was, uh, that was, then they offered me the job. I know that they looked at, I think about five other designers and it probably would have been better for them to have a German speaking person in Berlin, but it was in English and Yiddish. So they took a punt on me and I went to Berlin and did the job, which was really, really exciting. It's quite funny that your daughter put your name forward because it's usually the other way around when it comes to jobs. It's always the, it's always a family friend who's the, the older one, more wiser one, who will put the younger one forward to be like, push them along. And then to hear it's the other way around, it makes me quite laugh. And then the fact as well that they just assumed that you were just somebody at home knitting. And then <laughs> not until the power of Google <laughs> came along. I know, I know. Well, I, look, look I'm, I'm the older one, but I think that she might be the wiser one. Like you're, not, you're giving yourself too much disservice there. Uh, <laughs> how difficult was your research per, like process? Because I can imagine going into that sort of community, they're not very open to people asking questions about their traditions and what sort of clothing that they have. Did you just like, was a lot of it just done through research on the internet or did you manage to speak to people person to person about how 
how how someone in that community would dress? Well, that is a very good question. It is a very closed community, particularly the Satmars dynasty portion of the um, Hasidic Jewish community. So luckily for me, having done Messiah, which of course looked at all different religions, I actually went to Israel and my first part of research was for Messiah, but it, of course it crossed over. And I went into the Jewish community in, in Tel Aviv, but into the Orthodox Jewish community, which is very different from regular Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is terribly cosmopolitan and feels very European. It's actually quite a lovely city. And then I went into the Orthodox Jewish community and I wasn't really welcome there. People were a little bit rude to me on the street, just a couple of people. Most people just sort of stare at me as if I'm, you know, some sort of apparition because I don't think they see people like me very often. I'm, I'm really very quite tall. And as you can see, I've got very short blonde hair and I wear bright red lipstick, which no one can see anymore because I'm always wearing a mask now. But when back in the days, which was about um, three years ago, I walked around Tel Aviv and I took lots of notes about how that community presented itself. Then once I got the job on Unorthodox, I actually went to Williamsburg and I immersed myself for two weeks within the community there. So I stayed in a little hotel just just outside on the border of their part of Williamsburg. And then every day I went in and I just walked the streets. I went into the shops and you soon find out who will talk to you and who won't. For a start, men won't talk to you unless they have to. Some of the men would have to take off their hats and cover their eyes to avert their eyes from looking at someone like myself. But what I did find is when I went into the shops and I would buy things, I would start a dialogue about what the item was. For instance, Mordecai has a very specific hat on and it's it's very unusual for the community. It's very old fashioned for that, that community. It almost looks like a Russian Cossack sort of hat. And so once I got people to talk about what I was buying, I found that they really opened up to me. And then on the streets, I couldn't find, the women wear a very specific head wrap to cover their their bald heads. And I couldn't find those anywhere. So I spotted one young woman who had a particularly pretty one on. And I so I complimented her on it. And And as soon as I complimented her, she was very taken aback and a little bit startled. And I said, do you mind if I ask how you make it look so perfect? And then she explained to me that they actually have a a made to measure structure underneath that sort of sits on their head. So they don't look like, you know, straight onto a bald head. And then they put the scarf on top of that. And I asked if I could find out where she had had hers made. and, And that was it. The conversation was over. So I had to come up with ways of creating the same look without having it made to measure. Because, of course, we had, I'm not sure how many extras we had in the end, but well over 50 extras at the wedding. So throughout the show, we probably had about 80 female extras and I couldn't have a made to measure headpiece for everyone. So I had to figure out how to create the same look but on a much easier scale. So it was people like that did actually open up and a couple of old women stopped me on the street and were fascinated about the fact that I was in their community and asked me questions, which meant I could ask them questions. But it was tricky. 
And I did go into one shop with uh, one of the writers, Alexa Karolinski, and we fell in love with the Beckershire coats, which are the satin, beautiful um, fabric, long, long coats, terribly elegant. And Alexa actually put one on, which of course is a little bit, you know, naughty. And somebody snapped a photograph of her and it went viral within the WhatsApp community, which they have, which is how they talk to each other. And they said, don't sell to these women because they're making a television show. So that became quite tricky. And after that, I realized that I had to be much more gentle with the way we, we behaved and didn't try anything on. I mean, I didn't try it on, Alexa did. But, and Alexa looked great in it as well. It was so, it was such a beautiful item of clothing and it was a man's item of clothing. That was what the issue was. But then I actually ended up getting a a Jewish woman, a young Jewish lady to be my buyer so that I stopped offending people over there. And, And I became much more subtle. So research comes in many forms. Yes, the internet. Yes, any documentaries. Yes, any books I could read. And but on the ground was really where I spotted the subtleties of of the of the characters on the street. So we you're given a broad sense of the rules which come in the books and the documentaries, and then you see how the individuals mutate those character those character pieces to show who they are within that within that structure of their clothing that that they're told they're allowed to use. So the, the, sh- the dresses have to come five inches below the knee. They have to be covered from the wrist to the collarbone. And it's just, it's modesty clothing. So it was the, the nuances that I looked for that I could recreate in the show to, to have the characters pop from the screen. I had um, a similar experience because I stayed in Williamsburg when I was in New York last and it's weird because I never thought I'd ever feel like an outsider, but I did because you're walking around and everybody stares at you and you kind of think like, have I got something on my face? Is there something like, <laughs> is, have I done something embarrassing? But it's just how that community was and very sort of reserved and not, 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 I wouldn't say opening. It's just more, they're very weary of sort of outsiders and it's, it's really interesting to hear as well how, like going about talking to to each different person and how we have to approach it because it it feels very different to if you're speaking to somebody else of another religion and mm. trying to sort of get an, an idea into their world it's the same with i think one of my brother's friends studied out in rome in the senate in the uh, seminary and you know you're hearing about that world and just how very closed off it is and quiet and it's just, it's weird to think in a 21st century as well, just how, just how different it is still, you know, they're still very traditional and not for lack of a better term, moving with the times. Yeah. And well, keep. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, what I really noticed was when I did buy something and I paid with cash, they were very, very careful not to touch my hands. Like the men are not allowed to touch a woman that isn't their wife. So they would sort of almost drop <laughs> drop the the change into my hand or the receipt. It was it was really it was very noticeable and I did feel like I had stepped into a, another world actually. Uh, but also fascinating and fascinating how humans 
choose to live, choose to abide by rules that they think will keep them safe, which is which is basically what the Satmar community was set up for, was that they never wanted to experience the Holocaust again. So they became incredibly devout so that it that God would not be angry with them and would keep them safe. So I, I totally understand. You sort of think, well, these people are, um, you know, they're suffering. They're suffering from post, post-traumatic stress from World War II. So I have to respect that and understand that that's what they've decided to do with their lives to keep them safe. And, you know, it's a bit like in America. Some people wear face masks and wash their hands all the time and some people refuse to. And and I wear a face mask and wash my hands all the time because I believe there is a pandemic, but there are lots of people that don't. Yeah, it's quite scary out there, isn't it, at the moment? Equally as fascinating. So with clothing playing a really big part in Etsy's transition from her life in New York to her life in Germany. In New York, she's dressed very modestly and the colours used are a bit are very lacklustre and very sort of dull on the eye. But then when, you, when she moves to Germany and goes to the clothes shopping, they transform into more brighter and modern. When deciding Etsy's wardrobe for a transformation in Germany... How important was it not to jump the shark and just go all out with making it too obvious and too bright and too sort of modern? For me, it was extremely important. I actually had the pleasure of interviewing Deborah Feldman in person, and uh, I got to ask her what I thought was the most important question for my journey for Estes Clothing. And that was once she did make the transition and leave her community, How long did it take for her to feel comfortable and actually transition into clothing that wasn't modest? And she said that it did take years. And even though when she was was young and she wanted to experiment, she still doesn't feel comfortable in things that are are more revealing than a T-shirt, let's say. So I, I took that on board. I listened to her experience and then I worked it within my journey that I took Estes clothing on. So as you were very observant, when she was in the world of the Satmar community, women aren't allowed to dress in bright colours or, you know, show off in any way. It's considered vulgar. They're not supposed to to flaunt themselves. So I I pulled back the colours. We also wanted to make it have quite an old world feel and, and... recognize what the grandmother Bubby was going through. And because Esty lived with her grandmother Bubby, and she definitely was still very much in the, that post-traumatic experience and still missed everyone that had passed away during the war, I wanted to really fit in with the production design. So Silka and I spoke a lot about how we were going to find those colors and, and change the world as she changed her, her experience of her life. But when I got to Berlin, I also wanted to have sort of a a naivete about the way she dressed. And so I don't know if you noticed, but when she has that first day with the students and she goes to the Vanzi and she has her swim and she kind of releases herself and then re-experiences what she had basically had at the mikvah, which was a change of life experience in the water. I wanted her to take 
little tiny bits of information from the students she'd spent the day with and then emulate those. So for instance, uh, the beautiful girl uh, with the short brown hair, oh, whose name is escaping me. Oh, sorry, I can't remember her name. Was she, she had on a little stripy jacket and a t-shirt. And so I wanted to have Esty play with the idea that she was sort of learning from these women. And she, uh, so I got her a little jacket, but then I got her a plain jacket with a little stripy shirt. And the shirt was a, it was a vintage retro shirt because where she go, where she goes shopping is all secondhand because she doesn't have any money. So it was those sorts of little pieces I played with. I didn't want her to become immodest very quickly. So I don't know if you noticed, but any dress that she wears still has like a three quarter length sleeve. And I did open up the necklines very subtly but I did it very slowly and I didn't want that two weeks that she has in Berlin to suddenly have this new amazing woman. I wanted her to creep in slowly and I just brightened her up slightly. I still arced back to what she was wearing in the Williamsburg time. So I still used the palettes, but I just brightened up the colors. So she has a green dress in Williamsburg she has a green dress when she sings the song, but it's a fresher color. It's got flowers on it. It's prettier and it has a slightly open neckline. So I played with those little subtleties so that the audience wouldn't be bombarded with a new world that, that they would just see or feel from probably a subliminal point of view that she was just starting to wake up and experience a new life. Yeah, because you don't want to, assault the senses of the audience member and it seems slightly unrealistic to go from a very modest world to then being like going crazy and just putting on whatever thinking it's fine um, I do like when you were mentioning about her final performance with the dress because it did feel uh, the green dress uh, it did feel very it still felt of that old world even though she was singing uh, the song that her, she used to sing with her grandma and it's just kind of a mixture of both worlds coming together and colliding and coming into it. There's one costume that you didn't mention as well that I'm really glad you didn't. And that leads to my next question is about the wedding dress. Because you look at when you see the wedding dress in episode two, it's is not just visually stunning, but it just looks... If I was somebody's... Uh, if that was my wife walking down the aisle, there'd probably be a tear in my eye because it just looks incredible and just very intricate and very well uh, detailed. Was the sort of design for the wedding dress, did that come from looking at research for their weddings or was it something that kind of was freestyled and come together, a mixture of modern and traditional? The wedding dress was obviously my my money shot, as they call it in the, in the industry. And it came together through much research. I looked at many, many Hasidic weddings. And there are quite a, a lot of beautiful, beautiful dresses that you see online. And so I did loads of online research and looked at lots of rabbis, daughters' weddings, because they're the ones that have, have got a, more money to spend in that. Esty didn't have a lot of money to spend on it. And actually, Deborah Feldman's real dress was just rented for the day. Um, and I also wanted to look at Deborah's dress and recreate the elements that I could see that Deborah had. So it was a combination of the two. 
Deborah had three headdresses, which I recreated as best I could to look like hers. But then, of course, I heightened them slightly because we are working in television and we want it to, to look stunning. But the actual dress, I pearls are very highly regarded within that community for some reason. They're, they're, I never actually understood why, but they are. They're sort of the piece of jewellery that's acceptable that isn't gaudy, I think. So I wanted to encrust her with these pearls so that she's celebrating her womanhood coming into being a woman. She actually really wanted to get married and start doing God's work of creating children and and rebuilding the six million Jews that were lost in the Holocaust, which is what the Satmar's goal is. But I also wanted it to feel like it was almost like a straitjacket that her, her life, instead of being freed from, from being a child, she was then actually going into this intensely strict regime. So the dress represented the tightness and the claustrophobia of her world, but it also represented the dream of a young woman becoming a, a wife and doing God's work and creating more children. And so finding a wedding dress was quite tricky because my budget was not limitless. I couldn't build it from scratch, which would have just been too time consuming and too expensive. So I actually scoured eBay. I did go to all of the Turkish shops in Berlin looking for a modest wedding dress because um, there, obviously there are no Jewish clothing shops in Berlin for wedding dresses. So I had to look at the next modest clothing, which was the um, Islamic community, which is the Turkish and they have a lot of amazing dresses, but Esti is, um, or Shira Hass, I should say, is a particularly tiny woman. She's only five foot and she um, has got a tiny little frame. So buying a dress off the rack was not going to work anyway. So then I started looking at eBay and my team and I, my team, I had one assistant at the time, uh, and I we scoured eBay every day for a modesty dress that was being sold. And this one was one of 10 that I looked at. And Barbara, my assistant and I, decided to ask Shira if she would actually just come and look at the dress with us so that we could see if we could make it work. And it was when we walked into this lovely young woman's house, of course, we couldn't tell her that it was for a Jewish show because she was... So we, we just didn't mention what it was for. <laughs> and Esty tried it on and it was enormous on her, but it had the bones. It, it had a drop waist, but it had the beautiful corsetry and all the clustered pearls, but it just swallowed Esty. And I've got photographs of her and it's it's literally about two feet too long for her. And it's falling all around the ground. She looks a little bit like Ariel from, from the Little Mermaid standing in this lady's <laughs> living room. But I saw what I needed and I knew that I could cut it up and remake it. So we bought the dress. She wanted to sell me the veil. And I just said, look, hang on to the veil. I don't need your veil and have it as a, as a remembrance of your special day because they obviously needed the money. So I let her keep the veil and she was like, oh, thank you. And I knew that I could make the veil out of everything we cut off the dress because there's so much fabric that we were going to get rid of, which is exactly what I did. My tailor, Mathieu, and I cut up the dress and then we remade it. Uh, Mathieu did most of the work and I just 
told them how I wanted. We lifted up the waist so it wasn't drop waist anymore because um, Shearer is too small to, to carry that off. And then we just cut the body down and we made it fit her so that it fit her like a glove. She was sucked into it. And that created that corset, that structure of the straight jacket idea that I was having. And then with all the little bits and pieces that have been cut off, I made the three headdresses myself. So it was a true team effort. There is one scene that popped into my mind whilst you're speaking about a wedding dress is when they sit down and somebody brings them orange soup. Oh, yeah. And it just popped into my head, like, was that a very nerve-wracking scene for you to do? Because one little spill on a white dress is going to be <laughs> very difficult to get out, basically. Well, that that is a very good point. I I don't run the set. I have I have a team of costumers that do that. Uh, so I come in and make everything perfect before I leave it, leave them to it. And of course, what I do say is, please don't spill anything on the dress. <laughs> and Shira Haas is a very professional actress and very much aware of the needs of all departments. And of course, she didn't make any mistakes. But I have to say, after two days of that, because it took two days to shoot the wedding, and that dress came on and off and on and off because it was a heat wave in Berlin. It was like 100 degrees most days. It was incredibly hot. And the dress, after two days of really rigorous filming, died, basically. So <laughs> fell to pieces. <laughs> So it was, uh, yeah, it was quite sad. Yeah, because when I was watching that scene, it was just, it's not meant to be tension filled, but it just felt like I just, all I thought about was that soup going. Because I'm, unfortunately, I am one of those people that will get food on my shirt if I'm out somewhere. And just seeing that and just seeing the, like the tomato colour and oh, just <laughs> give me palpitations. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can come and work with me any day. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Because as well, at, at Christmas, we have a beetroot soup. And there's yeah. a running joke that our uncle always wears, wears like a purple shirt or jumper so that he can hide the stain if he spills it on himself. Um, and if you're wearing a white shirt, then you are very brave. So that's, yeah, it was just sort of just watching that. It just made me think of that. You mentioned as well, like that there's the big wedding and there's a numerous ex extras there where everybody had to be dressed in traditional garments and the males who have to wear the, um, I think I might butcher the pronunciation on this, the Shretimals? Strimals. Strimals, okay. Strimals. And like they they are very traditional headpieces. They look mm. incredible. Just, you know, those are the small details that really need to be portrayed on, on the screen. What was the most difficult part about getting the strimals and who were harder to design for was it the males or the females gosh okay well i'm going to start with the men because the jewish clothing or the orthodox jewish clothing for men is very different from from what you and i would wear in in your world your shirts button right left over right but in the jewish world it's right over left so you can't fake 
regular clothing for their clothing. So I had to buy everything from G&G Dry Goods in New York, in Brooklyn, which is their their main shop for the men's shopping. So I went in and I did put a huge order in. So that was very easy. All we had to do then was to fit the clothes to the men. But I did go and buy their hats, which are extraordinarily expensive. So even I had to buy the, that, the day hat. So they wear the flat wide brim hat for during the week. And then on the Sabbath, the Friday and the Saturday, they would wear the strimal. But only married men wear strimals and they get it on their wedding day. It's sort of, they consider it their crown. And I think the cheapest one you can buy is around $1,200. So I bought the black felt hats from New York because they had to be perfect. I couldn't fake them in any way. And the strimals, I went into the strimal shop to actually look at how they were constructed. And they're extraordinary works of art. But they take, I think they use about eight mink pelts to make one hat. And I, of course, didn't want to contribute to the fur industry. It's an industry that I think is uh, disgusting and horrible and cruel. And we don't need them when we can make such amazing fake fur. And so it became a big discussion between my director, the production designer and the producer about whether or not we could make them fake. And they all loved the idea of fake fur. <clears throat> and Silka actually was the one who really championed it the most. Silka was the production designer because I, I had tried to, to buy, I had tried to rent them or find them somewhere. But funnily enough, the Strimal actually has a fashion. So a few that I did find were sort of three inches deep and and really round like a, a they looked like a, you know a small flying saucer really which was not what the strimal was when deborah feldman was living her story and there was not the fashion of the strimal when i was doing my research so i did have enough time to work out the dimensions in the shop before i was actually asked to leave because as i told you the whatsapp group that message had gone around and they knew who i was and so I, I wasn't really even allowed to, to hold the hat, although I had sneakily done it while nobody was in there just to see what they looked like. And they have sort of this conical shape underneath the fur that's made out of felt, and then it's built on a felt structure, and it stands <clears throat> about three inches away from the head. Anyway, it was enough for me to, to get the dimensions. And then um, when I was in Germany, I scoured the world actually for interesting fur that could be likened to the actual pelt, fake fur. And finally, after about, I don't know, 15 samples, I chose two and a theater in Hamburg called the Theater Kunst Hamburg allowed me to use their studio workshop and I had um, a team of women build them for me. So I kept going to Hamburg and we'd look at it and we'd just change it and, you know, work out exactly how the hat was going to work. And then finally we pulled the trigger and I was like, okay, 45 of those, please. And they're huge. They're enormous pieces. And so if you have 45 hats in hat boxes how do you carry those all home, you know, back to the space in Berlin? So we actually had to have a, a truck go and pick them up. And it took, they filled the entire truck. And then to, to transfer them all the way around Berlin, they had their own 
truck to carry them. It was so that was logistically quite difficult. They were very fluffy when they arrived, and I had to spend a lot of time lacquering each one by hand, which consisted of spraying and combing and stroking and molding it into the shape to make it look like the beautiful strimals that the um, Hasidic community wear. So that was a huge challenge. And then for the women, it wasn't nearly so hard because I could just make, I could find clothing and I could make it, style it in a way that it was uh, modest. And working out the hat was, was, the headpiece was a little bit tricky, but I used, I ended up using actually a fluffy beanie, which I think cost about $2 on Amazon. And um, so I folded all these beanies in a certain way. And then we folded the scarf on top of that and stuck the scarf down onto the beanie, which I think worked really well. Unfortunately, it was very warm for those gorgeous women who wore it in the 100 degree heat. So everyone has got this massive beanie on under their scarf. But all the women, most of the women's clothing, actually, I got in secondhand shops and then we just fitted every single person and altered it to fit them to make it look modest and not garish in any way. There's a beautiful behind the scenes photo of you, the hairspray with someone as well. And it looks really cool. I'll probably use that on the image for on Instagram, right, the episode. But when you're doing, when you're designing the traditional outfits, because there's also dance scenes and people moving around. Like how much does like flexibility and movement play a part in how you're designing? And how do you sort of walk an actor through how they're supposed to move in the outfit? Well, I always make sure an actor is comfortable. I think that there's no point in dressing someone who can't move and can't be themselves or can't be the character. And I I think of my responsibility as designing the character that the actor and I find that person together. The actor is creating the emotional side of it and I'm facilitating the look of the character. So it's very common when you're dressing an actor for them to get into the wardrobe that you've just explained to them, basically. I always explain my entire thought process so they can really get on board with me. And once they get into the clothes, it's so common for them to go, oh my God, I've this is him. This is it. This is who I thought he was. And then they'll just go with, it's a beautiful organic process between my vision and their character. And as they come together, they, it, the, the character from the page comes to life, which is highly addictive. I warn all you listeners out there, if you ever get into design, it's highly addictive. It's a wonderful experience, but very, very hard work as well. And then with um, Jeff, who played Moisha, he was he was one of those actors who, who was very opinionated about who his character was. And because his father actually, I believe his father had been a rabbi, he knew exactly how he wanted to look. And he came into my office and we started talking about who he was and who this bad boy was. And he's like, but I want him to be traditional. I want him to have the plus floors on. I want him to have the long white socks. I want him to look like this and have the bigger hat. And I was like, yes, 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 Jeff. I totally, totally understand what you're saying. But I was, would you mind if I told you what I was thinking? And so I, I started presenting who I thought he was going to be 
he's kind of the rogue. He's like the sexy bad guy. He's he wears his shirt open, and if anyone's going to be the on-screen hottie, it's him. But he's got that bad boy undertone. And by the end of our conversation, he was like, "Oh, all right." I was like, "Because you're like the only good-looking guy in it, right? You're the only one that anyone's going to go, woo, Jeff or Moisha." And so, uh, you know, he tried on his suits and, of course, he looked amazing. Got rid of all the white socks. Thank you very much. We kept that for the rabbi. (laughs) And uh, Jeff turned into my sort of bad, sexy boy. And I really wanted him to have that sexy feel. And I bought him some really nice boots to make him feel different from the rest because the Hasidic community are known for wearing very sensible shoes, like nothing's ostentatious or or funky but Jeff had a funky suit on he wasn't in black he was in navy blue it was a stripe on stripe fabric which gave him an elegance that I didn't give anyone else and it just showed that he was also the black sheep and even though he was the black sheep trying to round up the black sheep in SD I wanted to to play with with that emotion again on a totally subliminal level but it, it, those are the sorts of key things that I think feed the character that helps the actor, that helps the audience really understand that this man is, is different from Yankee, who's just following the rule book, just doing everything he can and just totally confused at how things could have gone so wrong. So to get back to your original question about how they move in it, I always make sure that when I'm fitting a costume, I get them to move around and if they're doing a stunt or if they're running or they're doing something like that, then I will make sure that they can do that in the clothing because I know exactly where those pieces are going to be used. So I do design to facilitate the script. Because yeah, I always am curious to see how how an, how the clothing and the actor reacts to the movement and the dancing as well, like in the second episode. And I guess you... I guess the best way that I've sort of envisioned it is when I watched the behind the scenes of Aliens and James Cameron was talking about how they designed the um, body armor for the soldiers and how he would basically just get them to run into boxes, how it would uh, take it and everything. And then sometimes it's either too heavy or it's too light or the one little one little nudge and it's broken. And it's just nice to hear as well just the the thought process that goes into like those sort of little details to make sure that even though something looks nice on a mannequin, what's it going to react to a human wearing it? Exactly. I, I mean, it, it's, it's got to work in every, for every aspect of the script. And the bottom line is that my work facilitates the written word on the, in the script and brings it to life. And so it's got to work. And, and that is an enormous challenge sometimes. And, you know, I have to think long and hard about about how I'm going to resolve some of the trickier issues. For instance, at the moment, we're shooting very, very hot summer in the middle of winter Mississippi. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it snows here. And yet I've got women in these little summer dresses. And so I'm hiding all sorts of warming wear underneath their dresses and you know, they've got hand warmers stuffed into their pockets and, you know, foot warmers into their shoes if they can fit in. So uh, a lot of, of practical design goes into design work as well. It's not just all about aesthetics. It's, it's very practical. 
Yeah, I think sometimes people forget about that and they just see the what looks cool and what what doesn't look cool and everything. I am curious about one thing. Well, it's like, what's the idea behind the baseball caps for Yankee and Moisha? Oh, well, that was actually scripted. He he pulls them out of the bag and he goes, here, look, we're trying to not stand out too much. And he then they, you know, have a little fight over which baseball cap they're going to have. So basically the boys go to Berlin. And of course, that's where... You, that's where they had been eradicated from 70 years ago. And so they didn't, they, you know, there was this slight, slight nervousness about being there. And the Jewish cemetery that they actually go to, to, to pray to one of the rabbis there, was not destroyed by Hitler for the very reason that they wanted to use, they wanted to um, look up the names, to use the names to actually find the Jewish communities, families that were still alive and that people would still go and pay their respects to their past family members. And then, of course, they would be caught and taken away by that. So it's it's got this sort of, it's fantastic that it's still there, but at the same time, it's incredibly sad. And I do feel that Berlin in particular has this sort of deep sadness to it because of what occurred and so when Yankee and Moisha are going back to Berlin, that's very much in the forefront of their minds. And not everyone's aware of that, that it's, it was not a safe place for that, that community. So they did their little bit to try and fit in and put on their caps. <laughs> it just, it was just such a funny moment watching them put it on. It's like, don't worry, we won't stand out. And it's like, uh, <laughs> slightly do. But then it's also it's just, I, I think it's just one of those moments. It's like, trust me, we'll blend in. And yeah, uh, well, they also needed they needed to hide their little pious curls on the side, and so they stuck them up into the cap, and so they wouldn't stand out too hopelessly. But you know, I thought it was delightful. I'm kind of a little bit surprised that it was scripted as well. I thought it would have been something added on later on, rather than scripted. But there we go. Who was your favourite character to design for? I mean, working with Shira Haas was was just incredibly easy and lovely, and I adored working with her. And I loved her aunt Malka, who was sort of the sort of bosomy, bustling, you know, know it all auntie. But I loved playing off those her from from Esty to Malka, and then to Miriam, and Miriam was the mother in law. And it was that sort of dynamic, the trio that I like, I really enjoyed setting up. So Miriam had a lot more money than than the Shapiro family. No, she was the, oh, sorry, I'm getting the name. <laughs> it was a few years ago. It's okay. So, so Miriam, uh, Yankee's mother, had a lot more money because they had a, a jewellery company, whereas Esty's family did not have uh, an income as far as I know. And... So playing with the three women and just showing their choice of wardrobe to help explain the dynamic between them was a lot of fun. Um, and I really enjoyed dressing Miriam, who was a bit of a nosy bitch. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, when she comes in with the, with the, the, um, the gel to help her have sex and she's got that 
fantastic coat on and I had these amazing beautiful glasses for her to walk in wearing but she couldn't get them in because her her headdress was stuck down to her hair so we couldn't use them which was a bit of a shame but she she walks in with the lubricant and she's she's just so beautifully put together and Esty's standing there she hasn't even got dressed for the day and she still has on her turban and everything. I loved playing with those dynamics and Wolfgang, the um, cinematographer really helped me as well. And I don't know if you remember, but there's a scene where she's standing by the window and she's crying. And that's when she's with actually her auntie Malka and she's saying, I want to go home. I felt like that whole lighting that he did and the way I had dressed her in this slightly oversized dress so that she felt like she was just being swallowed by this new world. You know, I felt like it looked like a Vermeer painting with the lighting coming through the window and it falling on her beautiful face. And it was a very powerful dynamic, all those three women. And and that was such a joy to create. And of course, I, I loved Yankee was beautiful because he just is such a beautiful man. And he just stepped into everything and made it look like he was, you know, on the catwalk in Paris. And Jeff stepped into everything and made it just look sort of raunchy. So there were so many delightful people to work with and characters to work with and characteristics to work with that I can't say that I had a favourite. It was just a joy. Um, it was incredibly hard work, though. I worked every weekend. Um, I, don't, I don't think I had a day off for weeks. I had to trawl all the markets to find all those amazing pieces of clothing that I found for the women. And I'd have my Nana trolley and I'd go out in the morning and I'd go to all the secondhand markets and just dig through piles of rubbish to find the diamond in the rough that I could then recreate into a workable costume. And I also did that for the nightclub scene because we had to dress 250 people. And even though the Berliners did come dressed there was a certain look that I wanted to create as well so I went to a lot of the cooler secondhand street markets and dug through clothes that people were selling so that they could buy new clothes and look cool in the nightclub so I chose you know pick the eyes out of a lot of street markets as well Yankee's mum does look the way that she's sort of dressed is very sort of powerful you could tell that she's uh, somebody who's more upper class in that sort of community with the colours used and some of the sort of, you look at like the little bits of jewellery and how more elegant she looked. But with, the, you're mentioning the secondhand shops and markets, that must have been quite difficult sort of trawling through all of those. Even though you know what you want, there must be, I could just picturing like just thousands and thousands of items everywhere. Yeah. And then just sort of like sitting there being like, okay, I need to find this. I can't find this. I can't find that. But then I guess it's worth it in the end when you find something that's, that's just exactly what you need. Exactly. And I started to really understand what I was looking for. When I first started, it was, it was slow. And I went, there's a brilliant shop in Berlin called pick and weigh and it literally is you pick your item and they charge you by the weight of it so I went to there were a couple of big ones and I went to them sort of every week at the beginning of the week when I knew they had new stock and I would go in with my assistant Barbara and we would just buy absolute you know we'd have trolley loads of clothing because we a show like unorthodox even though 
it was low budget, we had loads and loads of people to dress. You know, all the extras on the street, all the women in Williamsburg, and then of course, the wedding, the family members, the supermarket. There were lots of spaces where we had to fill in a lot of extras. So yes, I had to, I had to go and just trawl through all the secondhand shops and just keep it just find those gems though and I did I even found a Chloe jacket for 10 euro uh, which Malka actually wears at one point I can't remember which scene it is or it might be the scene that her mother's not feeling well there's a she's got this beautiful little Chloe jacket which was you know probably about 1200 pounds on on in the shop originally and I got it for 10 euro so uh, it's a lot of fun and very satisfying when you can create such beautiful clothing on a low budget. And I actually used to laugh and say it was the beautiful, ugly show because I was sort of making these beautiful clothes fit into, I mean, ugly is the wrong word, but it, it it's not something that I find aesthetically pleasing. I would never dress like that, for instance. But Malka, I could make her really the strength and I made her clothes really well fitted and and I paired colours together that I thought were sophisticated. Whereas Miriam, oh, sorry, the other way around, Miriam, who's the richer one, that's what I did with her. And then with Malka, I made her a little bit more gaudy, like she has that bright green jacket on and just made her a little slightly less tasteful. Um, and it really helped with her physicality as well, being so sort of motherly and, and busybody-ish. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun creating those women. You mentioned as well, there was a scene where you had 250 extras. How do you plan for something like that? And because obviously you're never going to see every single one of them on screen, mm. but there's, but how, yeah, how do you plan for something like that? And how do you know which person looks best, best dressed for that sort of scene? That, that is one of the issues that I do have with uh, doing large extras crowds because you you actually aren't there on the day to choose who's front of camera. That's what the assistant, the ADs do. So it's a real talent, which I often go in and go, oh, why have you put that person at front of camera? They're not the best. And, and I often sort of go in and try and rejig them. For instance, on Messiah, we have this huge scene where we've got an evangelist who's played by um, Bo Bridges. And we have, a, we, I think we had seven or 800 extras on that day. And, I, and they hadn't used all the beautiful, well-dressed people at the front. So right before we were going for the take, I went running around. I was like, excuse me, can you come to the front? Oh, can you? And I just stepped in and had to do it, which I'm not really supposed to do. But with the, the dance scene, the nightclub scene, I just collected racks and racks. Over the weeks that I was there, I collected racks of clothing and we didn't pre-fit them. With all the wedding people, of course, we pre-fit everyone and made, made everything fit perfectly. But for a nightclub, you don't need to do that. So we sent out a brief of what we wanted them to look like which was some images that I had pulled and then just saying, please don't wear anything that's got a big logo on it. And please don't wear anything that's bright white or bright red, because those are the colors that take away from the action. So people brought clothing, but then I had clothing to substitute it with. And we had, I had a lot of extra help on that day and they would come in, they'd show us what we had. And then my dressers and I would pick out what we wanted them to wear 
And then we do a big lineup. Everyone lines up, 200 people, 250 people. And I walk down the line and I literally check each person and say, yes, I like the way you look. Yes, I like the way you look, but can you please change this? Or, oh, I'm sorry, I can see that Adidas logo on your shirt. We can't have that because we'll be sued by Adidas. So we would then, you know, swap out anything that needed to be swapped out, anything that might not work for the camera, like strobe or moray, change that out. So I go around and I just literally oversee every single piece. And then, and then I let the ADs do their magic. And then they'll probably choose the best answer or, you know, the, the best looking person or whatever appeals to their sensibility. And, and I can't be involved with that. I just have to focus on the main characters at that point. Fair enough. There's, there must be so much going through everybody's mind on those big days on yeah. what needs to be done, especially if you've got a limited time on set and trying to fit everything in potentially in a day or two, um, especially like 200. It's There's a lot of people on set as it is. And then to add an extra 250 people on set, it's just, just incredible to sort of think that. And you have to have people to look after them and herd them somewhere. Yes, we took over the whole street and we we had... As I said, it was very hot, which makes it very easy. And it was actually a nightclub. So it wasn't like they didn't fit in in the space. They did. But we had like mobile units set up outside for them to dress in and and keep all their personal stuff in. And and I think it actually turned out to be a really fun night because they really were dancing. We had a real DJ, the, the gorgeous girl on stage. Her name's, I think her name's Catnap. And she, she's quite a famous DJ in Berlin. She works at Bergheim. And so people, they were real clubbers and they enjoyed what she was doing. And she's, she's a very talented DJ and she sings along with the music. And I think it was a good night. No, it looked like a good night and it was probably quite fun to film. You know, you're getting paid to dance um, <laughs> and to exactly. enjoy yourself. Exactly. Um, so that sorts you out for beers later on leads this leads to my final question what's next for you well that was that was a while ago i've actually done a whole show since then called mosquito coast with um justin thoreau we were in mexico we started we started in los angeles and then we moved down to mexico and then of course we all got shut down on march the 16th because of covid and we were thinking oh you know it'll be between two and six weeks and then we'll be back to work so nobody was really taking it very seriously, to be honest. We And I even thought, oh, maybe I'll just go on holiday and just go and hang out on the beach until it blows over. And then um, Apple TV were like, nope, everybody go home now. Nobody can stay. So I mean, Mexico is such a fantastic country. It's, it's so beautiful and so full of culture and history. Anyway, so reluctantly, I went back to Los Angeles and... And then the chaos of the Emmy run started and I was working full on on that, which was so many interviews and, and, you know, I had to get all my publicity sorted out. And so that was a big thing. It's a big machine. You don't realize until you're in it what it's like. And then we got back up in October. So then I, I went back down to Mexico and finished Mosquito Coast which I think is going to be a quite a fun show. It's 
it mostly shot in Mexico, lots of lots of beautiful locations. And straight after that, I got uh, called Women of the Movement, which is the story of Emmett Till, which is the the 14 year old black boy who was lynched very brutally in 1955. And that triggered the civil rights movement, which we are still in today, which has sort of moved into Black Lives Matter. So it's a very timely piece. It's an incredibly sad story. We've had lots of tears while we're filming and while I was doing the research. And actually, even when I'm fitting the actresses, I'll put them in the clothing and and they'll just, you know, have a wave of emotion break over them because I've taken them back to that time. So that's what I'm doing at the moment in Mississippi. <laughs> that's the Mosquito Coast. That's uh, Rupert Wyatt, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think I know a couple of people that worked on that. Oh, really? The OP called Alex. I think his yes. last name is Dezenov. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm yes. really poor with names, as people like probably realised. He was really nice. And then the second project sounds really interesting as well. Do you know when either of those might be coming out? No, I don't. I mean, we finished shooting Mosquito at the end of last year, and it usually takes about a year for post-production, but but they're also quite strategic about when they release things like that. They might release it. Well, well I know that Messiah was released on um, New Year's Day, so there are schedules for those sorts of things, which is above my pay grade, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it is interesting to see how they how they schedule these things and especially now in the covid world where people have to stay at home or they can't what you know they can't go to cinema they're sort of staggering releases now and go back to sort of older formats well they're they're desperate to get content out there for people who are stuck at home and to create uh, entertainment and uh, so much so that here in mississippi they've they've put us on the essential workers list which which I find extraordinary, but there you are. It's a bit <laughs> much. Justine, thank you very much for your time today. For those who are interested, Unorthodox is streaming on Netflix. I highly recommend it. Yeah, thank you again. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope you all enjoy watching the show. And please stay safe and wear masks. And let's, let's get through this pandemic and stay alive. I uh, second that. I want to... I wanna... Cutting down the days when I could walk down the aisle and I hear, this is your pilot speaking, you know, we're taking off in a few moments. <laughs> All right. Well, it was uh, lovely meeting you. As well. And it was nice meeting you too. Thank you again. Take care. My Bye. pleasure. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.